Okay, hello, my name is Cassie Palongo, and I'm a science communicator in the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute um, at NASA Ames. So today I'm speaking with Tori Holler, um, who works in the exobiology branch at NASA Ames. And Tori, let's just start out. Can you tell me a little bit about what you do and what your research involves? Sure. Well, scientifically, uh, my background is as a chemist. And then in graduate school, I, I started to work in oceanography and specifically in chemical oceanography. And the focus of my research was on sediments. And I very quickly came to realize that a lot of what you see chemically in sediments is the result of the activity of microorganisms that live there. And so for me, that was kind of the start of a long path of research into how organisms interact with their environment at a chemical level. And that's been the consistent thread through everything that I've done since then, including at NASA. So my research today involves understanding how environmental factors, chemistry and physics of the environment, shape the possibility for life, and then in turn, how the activity of life changes the chemistry of the environment in ways that we could actually go and see. And so both of those kind of support NASA's interest in seeking evidence of life elsewhere because it's informative of where to look and what tools to use uh, and how to interpret the evidence. Yeah, so let's actually dissect this a little bit. Um, the term astrobiology has probably been well known in science circles for quite quite a number of years, but it's only, I want to say recently, maybe in the last decade, perhaps even less than that, been known a little bit more in a public sphere. Um, so, so if people who are interested in astrobiology but may not know too much about it, how would you describe this? Uh, for them? And what sort of research could they even look up if they wanted to know more about it? Yeah, I would say, you know, the way that I just described my own research trajectory, which is trying to understand the relationship between organism and environment, is not a bad description of astrobiology overall. So, of course, that's not unique to astrobiology. It's also a description of ecology, for example, and a lot of fields that, that focus on life on Earth. And that's as it should be. Right, astrobiology is in many ways an extension of what we can come to understand by studying life in its environmental context on Earth. And that means the origin of life in its environmental context, the evolution of life and, and the way that the planet evolves with it. So how has our planet changed in response to the fact that, that we're inhabited? Uh, and if we take that as a basis and, and understand how life is distributed here on Earth, uh, across land and in the oceans and in the subsurface, as a function of the environment, then it gives us a basis for understanding how life might distribute itself elsewhere beyond Earth. And so, <clears throat> so I think it's really important to note when we talk about astrobiology that there is the very tangible, concrete aspect of, of seeking to understand life in environmental context here on Earth that gives you a jumping off point for the more conceptual exercise of, of understanding how you would look for life elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so it really encompasses a lot. Um, people, I, I think, would focus on the, the sort of space exploration part of astrobiology, the astronomical or, or the robotic exploration part of astrobiology. And ultimately, that's how we'll go and seek evidence of life beyond Earth. But really, the field in terms of the research that comprises it spans a lot of traditional disciplines in science. So geochemistry and, and uh, origin of life research and ecology and oceanography and so many disciplines that are necessary to understand life here on our own planet, uh, you know, the nature of life, its tolerances, how it works. All of those things help us develop the mechanistic understanding that then 
gives us a jumping off point for, for looking for life elsewhere. So you said um, it's looking for it here on Earth. Essentially, things are in extreme environments as a jumping off point, potentially for finding stuff outside um, off of our planet. Have you done a lot of field work, or is your type of research actually relating to that, where you go into these extreme environments? I, I have done a fair amount. So I, I think that it's important to do two things. I think that everything needs to be grounded in observation. So what can we understand about the way life distributes itself in, in an environmental context here and why? And, and it's the why that's important because the why then allows you to say, what if the conditions weren't exactly the same, right? There's a lot of research that goes on in analog environments where analog means we think that there's something about the conditions in the environment that are informative about environments elsewhere. So for example, the subsurface of Mars or, or the oceans of Enceladus or Europa. We don't have perfect analogs on Earth to those environments. And so what we need to do, I think, is understand how life works in them in, in enough of a mechanistic and fundamental way that we don't need a perfect analog. We, we have a basis then for understanding what happens when conditions are a little bit different. And as well, we don't completely understand the, the nature of environments beyond Earth. We know something about them, right. um, but only what we've been able to learn from, from spacecraft observation, which are inherently a little, bit, a little bit limited. And so I think that a lot of the focus of my research is in that vein. So rather than seeking what I envision as, as something that is physically as similar as possible to, to an environment beyond Earth, Instead, I try to access environments where I think I can learn something about the, the basic interaction between, uh, between organism and environment in that system. And so a lot of my, res my, my recent work has been in serpentinizing systems. So serpentinizing systems are places where um, rocks that originated in Earth's mantle have made their way up close to the surface where they become accessible to circulation of fluids and also to researchers who are interested in circulation of those fluids. Mm -hmm. So the importance of this is when you look around at the life on our planet, everything you see, everything you see owes its existence in some way or another to the fact that our biosphere has figured out how to use sunlight as a source of energy. So we don't, right? You, you and I don't and the, and the listeners don't. Um, but ultimately, the base of our food chain are organisms who do. And so everything that we understand about, about the way that life works, at least in our sort of visual macroscopic context, comes from that aspect, that photosynthetic aspect. So the places that we're interested in looking for life beyond Earth, at least within our own solar system, don't have that access to sunlight, right? Surface conditions at, at the surface of Enceladus or Europa or the surface of Mars are too harsh for life to exist, or at least we think so. Uh, that's not true in the subsurface, but in the subsurface, there's no access to sunlight. And so we need to think about biospheres that are run in a different way, supplied with the resources that they need in a different way. And the different way in, in a lot of my research is that, that the planet itself or the moon itself can be the source of those resources. So think of them as being tied up in, in the rocks that compose the planet. And when those rocks interact with water, so when they dissolve in water and react with water, it, in a sense, liberates those resources and makes them available to life. And so a lot of my research is, is focused on places where we can understand that flow of resources from rocks to life. Mm -hmm. um, the particular 
focus in serpentinizing systems is the, the, these mantle rocks, which we study because we think that they're similar mineralogically and compositionally to, to what we might find in the subsurface of Mars or Europa. Um, they give a very unique chemistry when they react with water. So they liberate a lot of hydrogen, which is widely utilized by microorganisms as a source of energy or food. They also create very alkaline conditions. So the pH in some of these places can be above 12. And, and this is the kind of thing that um, you would use as a, as a drain cleaner, right? And, and not a happy place for microorganisms. So it's, it's a biochemically challenging environment. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's really interesting to study because it's a place where the flow of resources is, is from rocks to life and not from photosynthesis to life. Um, and that makes it a mechanistic analog. Right. Uh, it also happens to, to take me to some very interesting places. So we have some of these ophiolite environments, serpentinizing environments here in California, actually, um, but they're spread around the globe. So these often occur in places where tectonic activity has taken parts of the, the ancient ocean crust and scraped it onto land. That's how, how bits and pieces of Earth's mantle become accessible to us. So probably the best exposed of these is in Oman uh, on the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and I was there earlier this year. So had a chance to do research in, in a field site in Oman. Uh, and that was really, really interesting. Uh, you know, culturally unique, but also geographically, geochemically uh, unique place to be. I imagine some of the challenges too that you must come across is also not only conducting the research, but then challenging environments. I mean, if these are things are in extreme environments and if you're going to a place that could be potentially 120 degrees in the summer, that can be really tricky to conduct research um, because we're not necessarily made to live in those environments for extreme for long amounts of time. So is that just one of many sort of the challenges that you come across in conducting your research? Yeah, it's so so there are access challenges sometimes to these places. Sometimes you're dealing with conditions that uh, aren't the most hospitable to you as an organism because you and I are not extremophiles. In my mind, that's part of the fun because it feels like you've accomplished something when when uh, you get to the end of that process. So even even our field site here in Northern California, we've had days at that field site that are hotter than the days that I experienced at our Amon field site. Uh, because we were there in the winter time, and so, but but you know, those are those are things that uh, we all learn how to deal with, and and for me, it's just part of what makes it interesting. I, field work is one of my favorite parts of my job, and and um, you know, the 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 little bits and pieces of things like that that, that pose challenges are part of what makes it fun for me. It must be nice because it must feel like you're doing science for science, not necessarily in the lab, but you're not having to do paperwork or anything, you're conducting science uh, as a scientist. So that must be good. Actually, I've, I've told a lot of people that, that the experience in Oman was great for me in exactly the way that you're describing, right? Because at this stage of my career, a typical day for me doesn't involve much time standing at the bench doing, doing actual uh, lab work. It's much more paperwork and writing proposals and papers and, and things like that. And the time in Oman, the days were long, Right. So so eight or nine hours out in the field in the sun and the heat and challenging conditions and then uh, go back and do several hours of lab work at night. And so they were very long days, but I loved them uh, because all I was doing was was being a, a sort of a, a laboratory scientist again uh, with one thing to focus on, you know, and and field work challenges to solve. How do you how do you make this go under challenging circumstances? Or, you know, how do you improvise a technique to do that when you didn't necessarily bring the right equipment in the first place? And so, um, 
yeah, it's, it's exactly as you say, fieldwork is a way to kind of come back to your origins as a, as a scientist. So on that note, can you talk a little bit about sort of how you got involved in your science journey? I'm, I'm always curious about this. Sometimes for people, it's a spark. Some people said, you know, it's something that I just always knew. I, I built telescopes when I was in high school. Uh, I just, yeah, I fell, or for some they fell into it. Um, what, what, what was unique about your journey um, and how you got into science? And in this yeah. particular realm of what you do currently, too. Yeah, I guess I would say from fairly early on, I had a I had a um, interest in science and probably a notion that I would go into science. So I'm fortunate in that I grew up in places where I could spend a lot of time uh, kind of exploring nature. Uh, I, I, in my earliest life, I was born and raised in the Bahamas. And so there was lots of time spent on the reefs there and, and sort of, you know, out poking around in the environment. My grandparents had a place in Canada on a lake that I used to go to every summer. And it was the same situation there, right? I had lots of time during the day to, to just kind of see how things worked, you know, watch, observe, figure out that kind of thing. And, and my grandfather was very much a Mr. Wizard kind of person, you know, could, could explain everything and, and show how things worked. So that was definitely um, an influence, I think, on, on my path of becoming a scientist, the, the, both those experiences, but also, you know, having my grandfather there to kind of foster them a little bit. And then in high school, by the time I got to be a sophomore, I guess I started taking chemistry and that just really resonated with me. It's like, you know, everyone has something I think that that clicks for them and it works the way that their brain works. And for me, that was chemistry. And it also happened to be that I had a teacher who was fantastic, right? Still is a friend to this day. I actually still communicate oh, wow. with him to this day. 30, 30, I won't say how many years later, um, 30 plus years after um, uh, after leaving his class, but th that also, I think, influenced my trajectory. And so by the time I had finished two chemistry classes in high school, I was pretty convinced that that's what I wanted to do in my career. Uh, in fact, I planned to professionally become a chemist and, and it was an undergraduate research experience in college while I was pursuing a chemistry degree that instead put me on the path through oceanography and, um, and ultimately into astrobiology. That's a really interesting pathway of how that, yeah. it sounds like you were always surrounded by water too, in some sense. Like yeah, and, and, and until um, really until so so from the Bahamas, we moved to Florida. So it was the same story there. And, and then there was the time spent in Canada. Really, the only time that I didn't have that access is my family lived in Germany when I was a teenager. Um, we were relatively far from water, didn't have that kind of access there. And that's the time that I kind of discovered chemistry. And then when I went back to, um, uh, to undergrad, I started working again in an oceanography group. And so really the only hiatus, the only time water wasn't in the picture for me um, was that time in Germany. And I, and I do, I very much think of myself as a water person. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I love being in, on, around the water. And it's, uh, it's, it doesn't fall uh, short of also saying that the whole precursor, at least in, as far as we are aware of, you know, we look the search for water, right? search for life we're looking for water so that's that's not lost on me um you talked a little bit about europa um looking at sort of those sort of environments you're also involved with uh, something called nasa europa clipper um i'm mm -hmm. wondering if you can speak a little bit about that and also what kind of things are you going to be measuring with it and um does it does it excite you these sort of, sort of 
out of the missions that we're potentially going to be conducting in the next some years. Yeah, so, so for me, that's one of the payoffs of working for NASA is that a person who fundamentally is sort of an oceanography, chemistry, microbiology person can nonetheless have some involvement with space missions. Um, and I, I also loved and was interested in space as a kid. And so, uh, although I never made it a, a, a career objective to come to NASA, the fact that I'm here and that, that I have the opportunity to be involved with missions in that way is, is really cool to me, really exciting. So I was involved in, in Europa in two ways. The whenever, whenever we're going to do a big mission like this, there's always an extensive planning activity so that we really, really can take the time to work out what are the science questions and how can we trace those out into measurements that, that we feel pretty confident will deliver us the answers that we're looking for. And then that gets taken away by an engineering team and, and turned into a, something that actually looks and flies like a spacecraft and, and does the thing that the scientists want it to do. So I was involved in, in two of these science definition activities. And the first of them, uh, for, for Europa, the first of them is the one that led to the mission that we now call Europa Clipper. And the focus there is very much on habitability of Europa. So we have a sense that, that Europa has this deep ocean underneath several kilometers of ice uh, and reason to believe that it's habitable. But that's based on, on you know, observations that were made quite a while ago. And we have the ability now to, to go and interrogate that world in a much more extensive way. So we, we will be able to say much more about the presence of water, whether or not it's saline, so salty like our own ocean is. And that's important because remember when we talked about that, that rocks in these worlds provide the, the flow of resources to life, saltiness is an indicator that rocks have interacted with water. And so if we see a salty ocean there, that's a good indicator that that, that flow has happened. Um, we will be able to look at the surface of Europa in, in the infrared, so meaning a specific set of wavelengths of, of light that allow us to say something about the chemistry of the surface. If we look at pictures of Europa, it, it doesn't look like a shiny ice ball. It looks like there are patches of discolored material. And so there's real interest in finding out what those are and whether that material originated within the ocean. Because if it did, the implication is that material from the ocean has been coming up and it, and it almost, in a sense, gives us samples, right, that, that have come from underneath and made their way up to the surface. And that's important. Um, so, so we will be able to say quite a bit compositionally about what's on the surface and even what makes it into the atmosphere. So there's a, a very, very tenuous, it's maybe not right to say atmosphere on Europa because it's nothing like our own. But there's a tenuous molecular layer that surrounds it, and we can fly through that and analyze it chemically. And so these are all the sorts of things that, that we'll be able to do there to say more about the ocean, to say more about the, the thickness of the ice and, and where we start to encounter the ocean, its depth, its salinity. All of those things bear on the availability and the lifetime of, of water there uh, on whether or not resources have been provided by the interaction of, of rocks and water and then what the chemistry of the surface looks like um, and, and, and of this tenuous atmosphere looks like so that we can make inference of, about the, the deeper parts of the ocean. Yeah. So that's the, that's the Clipper mission um, that, that is in the queue to fly. Mm -hmm. The second thing that I was involved with was, was a science definition act team for a Europa lander. So the Clipper will do multiple flybys, but not actually land on the surface. All of the things that I described get done um, from space remotely. 
the lander mission would actually go down and land on the surface of Europa. And that's exciting because it gives you a different kind of, different kind of access to samples. And the specific job objective that was put in front of that science definition team was to design a mission that could, that could look for evidence of life. Uh, and, and that was exciting because it's really the first time that that had been put out as a, as a leading objective of one of our missions in many, many years. And, and I found it very useful because there's been a lot of research that, that sort of goes into the question of how you look for life. But the concreteness that, and, and the sort of sense of urgency that came with now needing to think about this in the specific context of a mission and allocation of mass to payload and allocation of power to payload. How can you do this and, and fit that investigation inside a pretty well-defined box, basically, that is given to you in this mission? And that was a, a very different experience. So a lot of the science relating to the Clipper mission and the determination of habitability was pretty well-defined, I think, and we understood the kinds of instrumentation that could do that and, and um, what we would need to do. It was much more wide open discussion when it came to searching for life, in part just because that hadn't been a mainstream objective before. And so for me, that was meaningful and informative in the way that I pursue my own career because it showed me you know, pl places where I thought, wow, if only we knew this, we could do a great job of, of you know, figuring out what instrument to fly or whatever. So places where, where I saw gaps or, or things that we could learn that would help us inform missions like that have become things that I pursue in my research now uh, to the extent that I'm able. So I actually think that, that that team did a really good job of putting together a mission that, that was not only capable of, of looking for evidence of life, but also really importantly um, sought to place any of those findings strongly within environmental context, which, which matters because what if you go and you don't find evidence of life? Is that because life isn't there or wasn't there? Or is it because something about the environment suggests that you wouldn't have seen it with the instrument package that you brought? Right. Um, and if you did find it there, what can you say about, about its nature as a result of the environment that it lives in? And so I, I think that science definition activity was foresightful in making sure that, that everything that was proposed was proposed strongly in, in environmental context. And ultimately that's what planetary science is. It's about characterizing the environment. And so I see the search for life as just kind of the next logical step in that environmental characterization. Um, could the environment host life and does it host life? Another challenge uh, as we were uh, thinking about it, you're talking about the flyby and then of course the lander, but another challenge that people may not be aware of is that there, there also has to be a mindful approach to when we launch landers, we have to make sure that they're clean to a certain extent that we're not transporting our own or bacteria or microbiology onto foreign worlds. Um, I, I think that's, is that the planetary defense sort of mission or something along those lines, but yeah, so, so a lot of people may not realize that, that NASA actually, so, so first of all, that there are international treaties governing planetary protection, and that NASA has an office of planetary protection and a planetary protection officer. Uh, and that job goes two ways. So one is to make sure that, that when we contemplate returning samples to Earth or, or returning spacecraft or astronauts or whatever to Earth, that we're not contaminating Earth with materials from the outside. 
The other is that as we begin to contemplate missions that, that seek evidence of life, inherently we're going to places that we think the conditions would actually support life. So we have to be very careful, as you say, that we are not bringing things on our spacecraft that, that have the potential to take root there, or that that would serve to confound our measurements. So if we're looking for evidence of life and we happen to have some, you know, some microbes growing on our spacecraft or, or some of their molecular remnants, that's something that we really need to control for and be aware of. And, and so those discussions are always very much part and parcel to these science definition activities. Uh, we, we plan in the way that the mission is designed and the way that it's cleaned beforehand um, for exactly that sort of thing, uh, to, to try to make sure that we're doing it in, in an appropriate yeah, way. It's good to have that mindfulness, um, because like you say, the, the worst thing is announcing some kind of discovery and then having to retract that information because we didn't take certain things into account. But NASA, I think, does an incredible job with ensuring all of these things are actually being put the call. Um, so that's helpful yeah. to know. Um, yeah. I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, I think you're an excellent science communicator. Um, I, I, I'm also involved with science communication as a bit of a science writer and also enjoying doing interviews with scientists. And I like to empower scientists yeah. through science communication. Um, why do you think that it's important for scientists to perhaps work on their own communication abilities or to become even a little bit better at science communication in general? Yeah. Well, thank you. First of all, um, I, I, I do. I do think it matters a lot to try to be a good science communicator. I think it matters in a couple of ways. So we at NASA and, and this is true for many scientists are stewards of public funding. We do what we are able to do because the public supports it and, and provides that support. So I think we and all scientists owe it to that public to let them know what we're doing with that funding and to try to convey to them some of the excitement that we ourselves have in pursuing what we do. So why, why, are, we, why are we pursuing these particular avenues of research? Why should it matter to you that we're pursuing these? Why should these questions matter to humanity? And, and are we doing a good job? Uh, and how are we doing? So I think it really matters to constantly go back and inform the folks who are funding our research as to, as to what we're doing. I'll say in my case, so I had opportunities very early on in my career to do a lot of science outreach and science communication. And I think that's one of the great things about working for NASA because of the, the, the sort of name recognition with the public. And I think because of the, the, the intrigue of what we do as an endeavor, it allows us to, to, to engage with the public a lot. Right. It, it draws people in. And, and once you've drawn them in, then you need to actually make something of that opportunity. So for me, I found constantly that, that the opportunity to try to talk to the public about my research re-energized me. So when, when we often can get buried in the details of what we do, necessarily, right? Because science often is about details. But what drew me in in the first place was the big picture of it. Why does it matter in a, in a big sense? When you talk to the public, you have to pull back from the details, recapture that big picture, recapture that excitement that drew you into it in the first place, and that's what you convey. So I think for me, there was real value in, in that part of it to constantly reconnect with, with what energized me about it in the first place. The other thing is, you, you, if you don't understand your material really in terms of its essence, what are the key things, 
um, it's very difficult to convey to a public audience that lacks the technical background that many of your colleagues do. And so it causes you as a scientist to, to really understand your material that much better, to understand its basics that much better. And I think that's also very valuable. So a, a specific experience that I had was designing ex exhibit content for a museum for the California Academy of Sciences. Oh, and it was, it was an astrobiology exhibit and, and they will tell you, so exhibit designers there will tell you that you have certain limited space in which to convey an idea, right? Describe what a hydrothermal vent is and why it matters in the context of astrobiology in less than 50 words at a level that could be understood by a, a fifth grader or so. So that's a challenge, right? And it really makes you distill what you understand about the system down to its very essence in order to be able to convey in that way. And, and that to me also is valuable in the sense that it leads you to understand your own material better, right? That's true of any teaching, I think, that any time you have to teach someone else, you, you have to learn it that much better yourself. Um, but for all of those reasons, I, I think that it really matters. And I, I absolutely encourage people to do that whenever they can. Um, sharpens your skills, helps you, you know, helps you become more effective uh, and I overall. If it's actually and, encouraged or even changed how you conduct your own research just by having these sort of different ideas and maybe even certain questions that perhaps general public would come out and ask could even make you think a different a different way or a different sense. Um, it seems like it could be a very, not necessarily con true collaboration, but it, it is something where I, I feel like it, it, it does re-energize and it does help get people out of their narrow focus, at least in, in some instances, I think. I, I think that's true. And, and even as a scientist, some of the things that I, that I think I've been able to contribute in my career, I've contributed in a sense because I was naive about the subject mm -hmm. matter. I didn't have such a, such a deep and formal training of it that, that I was entrenched in my thinking about it. And so, so the naivete and, and the sort of, you know, being new to it actually was helpful in the sense that it allowed me to think a little bit more broadly. And that potential is certainly there anytime you talk to a, a public audience, right? You, you have a, a diversity of perspectives and that diversity is always helpful. Right, you're going to encounter something new and something orthogonal, and and occasionally it can push you in terms of the way that you think. And the one other thing I think I would say about this subject is, you know, scientists. It, the, the the thing that makes you a good scientist doesn't necessarily make you a good communicator of science. Um, and oftentimes, you know, the way that we're trained to to approach things, you you drive at something until you're not 95% convinced, you know, but really, really 100% mm -hmm. convinced. Sometimes can can cause us to hold back in conveying information that matters, right, at a societal level, or how do we approach things? And there are many people out there who who are not scientists but are very good, effective, and charismatic communicators, um, and I think that scientific information matters in the world and matters in decision making. And so for scientists to, to be willing to communicate and to be good at communicating is important. At least it broadens the conversation a little bit. Um, and it could really, at least in my, in my background, because I'm not a scientist, I'm actually an English major, um, but it's hmm. helped to help me to understand the scientific method a little bit more and ways that I can apply this in the real world and to what I'm doing. 
And it just seems like a really important endeavor. Not necessarily everybody has to be a scientist, but at least in understanding the process and how things work, how do things work with my phone, for example, or laptop, I'm thinking electronics right now, but in just like natural world settings too. Um, so I think mm -hmm. that's, yeah, that's incredible. And what kind of advice do you think that you would want to give people who are either early career or mid-career wanting to go into science or even advice that you would have given yourself as uh, you were starting out that you could have at least, not necessarily bad or maybe some bad, <laughs> be aware of these things are going to happen, but what kind of advice do you think you would have uh, liked to have given yourself when you were going on this journey? I, yeah, I guess I would say I think that what matters is is to really understand that that science is what drives you and curiosity is what drives you. Um, it it can definitely pose its challenges along the way as a career choice, right? You can you can wind up working quite hard in science, and sometimes you know you you bang your head against a new method or or an idea, and and that can be frustrating. On the other hand, the the, the moments of discovery, you know, you you have an idea. You think this is how something works. You pursue it. You figure out how to test that idea, um, and you reach a point where you you you've generated some new information. And for a small while, you're the only person who knows it. And I find those discovery moments really motivating and driving. I think that if you are interested in per pursuing a career in science, especially in academic science, right, research science, um, it matters to have that curiosity-driven aspect to it. Um, you know that that um, that it's something that really is going to get you up and going every day, and I definitely, in the course of my career, have had times where uh, my motivation goes up and down. And this goes back to the to the question about science communication, right? But communicating with the public has many times helped me recapture that sense of motivation. Um, and so I think, if anything, maybe that's that's the advice that I would give, right? Do it. Make sure that you're doing it for the right reason, um, which is that it, it, it really, that really is what thrills you. This might be a little controversial and you don't have to answer this in full, but what sort of things that you wish that you could clarify a little bit about your field? Um, maybe think news articles that you've seen. Uh, I mean, journalists or people, obviously, they don't necessarily get it all right. But is there anything that you've noticed um, in your in uh, basically in like multimedia or media in general that not necessarily they're getting wrong intentionally but you wish oh i just wish they would have said something a little bit about astrobiology or something um or any examples of research that you wish people could could understand yeah i guess i would say that the one thing is that in in astrobiology you take the good with the bad right so we have talked about the fact that it has an intrigue with the public and and just is an inherently interesting subject matter for people and that allows us to sort of draw that audience in um, it is part of what enables our research to be supported with public funding right because i think people really do see this as an interesting endeavor but but that's a spectrum right there is interest and and then i think it can also at the other end of the spectrum begin to seem a bit you know sort of spacey for lack of a better word right um, that it's not concrete science, but rather, you know, looking for little green men. And that isn't the case at all. But I think the potential is there for that perception. And again, it's about science communication. It's about it's about letting people know what the field really is, what the research really is, how concrete an endeavor it is, and that when we do go searching for evidence of life beyond Earth, we can we can do that with scientific rigor. 
right? We can be guided by centuries of development of, of scientific method uh, and, and approaches to scientific investigation, and that there really is a way to, to answer this fundamental question in a scientific way. Uh, and, and I feel like we right now are poised to do that as, as has never been the case yeah. before. Cool. All right. Well, I think we're out of time. Tori, thank you so much for the really enlightening and interesting discussion. Um, all the best with these upcoming missions that you're on. It sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. And I can tell in your voice that you're really excited about it. <laughs> uh, it was pretty yeah. cool to just hear about it today. So thank you very much for your time. Oh, you're most welcome. This was fun.